Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 90 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending February 16, 2018, the Carbon Copy Edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and myself take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, including a very interesting article by T. Marcus Funk and Andrew Boutros entitled The Evolution and Status of Carbon, of Carbon Copy. Uh, and uh, multiple prosecutions of com- compliance, excuse me, corruption violations across the globe. We take a look at uh, some basic macroeconomics and sh- as John Bray explores the intersection of sunk costs and third-party bribe payments. Bill Coffin really nailed it in an article about that uh, uh, opining that compliance officers are the conscience of the company. Dick Casson notes that the Justice Department ends its investigation of core labs around the country's country's relationship to Unoil, and Juniper Networks gets a declination. The Petavesa management team in charge of bribes are all indicted in money laundering based on FCPA violations. South Sally Alfonso uh, explains why you need to get out of your compliance comfort zone in the SCCE blog. Joe Mont explored the business misuse of MDAs. Finally, we take a look at Ethisphere's most World's Most Ethical Company Awards for 2018, which were released this week, and some of the thoughts by Matt Kelly, which explored the key similarities of the companies who were winners. I talk about my um, experience of the FCPA Masterclass this past week in Miami with Jonathan Marks of Markham LLC, and we discuss the pre-publication sale of my upcoming book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with my colleague, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This week is episode 90 for the week ending February 16, 2018, the Carbon Copy Edition. Jay, Houston winter has finally taken its most relevant form. I'm in shorts, and it was 82 yesterday, so welcome. Sounds like you're living in L.A. instead of me. So we had the coldest winter I can imagine, and now we're in shorts. So February in Houston. It's great. Jay, we had, I thought, a pretty interesting week uh, in lots of different topics, both FCPA and compliance and ethics related. So how about we just jump right into it? Let's, uh, Let's go. Why don't you tell us about the evolution and status of carbon copy prosecution? an anti-corruption phenomenon that seems to be here to stay. So Andrew Boutros and T. Marcus Funk jointly authored a uh, paper, uh, I would even say a a short law review piece, but it's in the uh, Bloomberg Law White Collar Report entitled The Evolution Status of Carbon Copy Prosecutions and an Anti-Corruption Phenomenon Here to Stay. And I thought it was uh, pretty interesting and uh, really is a discussion point because I think there's some, frankly, uh, procedural, legal, and political uh, hurdles that cannot be overcome by this problem. But they, the problem they identified, Jay, is that with multiple countries now enforcing various domestic anti-bribery and anti-corruption statutes, you have the opportunity for companies to be whipsawed by um, these multiple prosecutions. And they pointed to several, several examples uh, the most, um, and by that I mean they would be prosecuted on the same or similar facts for essentially the same crime in multiple countries based upon those countries' own anti-corruption laws. So obviously we have the uh, 
FCPA here in the United States. Brazil has the Clean Companies Act. Uh, United Kingdom has uh, the Bribery Act. France has Sapontu, uh, Du, and um, a lot of other countries have uh, similar uh, anti-corruption laws. And the authors are concerned that companies will face multiple prosecutions. Uh, that's certainly something that has happened, and they point to the Halliburton-Boney Island case, where some, I think, five years after Halliburton resolved this case with the United States, Nigeria turned around and tried to uh, indict Dick Cheney, uh, then a sitting vice president, uh, over the case, or at least a former sitting vice president. But there are other examples they go through as well. And um, they think or posit that this puts companies in very difficult positions because they don't know uh, what their total fine and penalties may be and that it will discourage companies from engaging in proactive reporting to the government. So, um, but what they propose really is, uh, I think, uh, probably a remedy that, that is just not realistic, which is some sort of international double standard, or excuse me, international double jeopardy standard. Uh, that would require companies, excuse me, countries to recognize prosecutions on either the same or similar facts or the same or similar laws from other countries. That, I think, is uh, United States can't even get that between the state and the federal government. So I can pretty safely say the United States is never going to do that. Now, other countries have different views and different legal systems. And the United Kingdom, for instance, has a uh, view of double jeopardy that if the facts are similar, they won't prosecute uh, under UK law on similar facts. But uh, I think, though, the answer is, and the thing that I have uh, become increasingly comfortable with, is um, referenced um, from a statement with Attor Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein from November of 2017, where he said that the Department of Justice was uh, certainly considering this problem and said, quote, the DOJ is committed to make it, making a concerted effort to apportion penalties among international and domestic agencies where appropriate. That is certainly consistent with comments we heard from both the Department of Justice and from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Kara Brockmeyer said that uh, when she was head of the FCPA unit. And I think what you will see, Jay, is cases like Odebrecht, cases like Rolls-Royce, cases like Keppel Offshore, cases like SBM Offshore, where countries will uh, create one pie of fine and penalties and divvy that up. The role of the United States in that, uh, I think, will be to lead that discussion and lead really putting the pie together, certainly because of the United States' uh, commitment to uh, fighting bribery and corruption, but also having the, the largest number of cases. But the, um, the authors uh, have a much broader remit than uh, simply even what I've discussed because they go through and point out potential benefits of having uh, a system where companies feel confident that they won't get whipsawed and they describe as potential benefits of early, multi early multi-sovereign disclosures to both the United States and foreign authorities. Uh, they believe it's in the interest of the country where the bribes occurred to be told about the bribe so that they can try to remedy or remediate if they've got a, a bribe taker in the government or something like that. Certainly from the company perspective, if there are 
self-disclosures to the United States about Country X, the United States prosecutors are probably going to pick up the phone and call Country X and say, we've got this information, we've got this evidence, we've got this self-disclosure, this is something you may want to investigate. So it's going to be relatively impossible to hide um, uh, by self-disclosing just to one country. And they point out, uh, we talked about the international uh, double jeopardy as a key consideration, and that uh, having the one pie settlement um, certainly benefits companies. And they point out, they go into some uh, pretty in-depth legal analysis around the issue of collateral estoppel, and I won't uh, really dive into the nuts and bolts of collateral estoppel, but it's basically issue preclusion, which is a common law doctrine that said it prevents companies from relitigating an issue. So, Jay, if there is a whistleblower in India who brings a whistleblower action against a U.S. company and that is resolved one way or the other, if that whistleblower then comes to the United States and files the same lawsuit against the same company, we would say they're collaterally stopped or uh, precluded from bringing that issue. And they recognize, um, the authors recognize collateral estoppel as, as a legal defense that many companies could use uh, to keep from facing this. So a very interesting article. Uh, these guys, I would say, are fairly prolific writers. I've seen lots of stuff from them over the years. And um, if you're a law geek, I think they really satisfied that part of you and certainly me to go into the weeds on a, a problem or at least an issue, Jay, that is uh, becoming and will become uh, greater with the number of countries both passing anti-corruption laws and uh, bringing more enforcement actions. Yeah, and we'll include this in the um, show notes. This article says that it was adapted and modified with permission from a chapter in Funk and Boudros's forthcoming book, From Bribery to Bakshi's. So next we had uh, an interesting piece, which was in the FCPA blog by a fellow named John Bray. Examining the global And John Bray uh, talked about agents who use the economic uh, concept of sunk cost to um, encourage bribery. And by this, what they meant, Jay, was that um, there was a situation of some Iraqis who had become nationalized Australian citizens and uh, after the first Gulf War. And they um, went back to Iraq and were trying to do business and had set up a, um, a business venture there and had put uh, several million dollars into this business venture. And when it came down to close the deal, their local agent said that uh, they needed uh, to pay some bribes. And the reason, uh, the logic he gave them was, look, you've invested so much money in this project anyway, we just need a little more to get over the hump. So uh, it comes down to the sunk cost fallacy. The more you invest in something, the harder it becomes to abandon it. And I was just particularly um, pleased to see my uh, freshman year macroeconomics course professor cited in that sunk cost, Jay. Well, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, my, um, I guess my example would be, you know, if you're playing poker and you got a big pot there, you got to uh, you got to pay to see the other guy's cards, and uh, they uh, psychologically uh, took advantage of this situation 
and got them to uh, get over the hump and pay for the bribe. So I've been toying with the idea, Jay, of writing a week-long series of an economy or a, a compliance officer's guide to the economics of FCPA compliance and sunk costs would definitely be uh, one of the blog posts. So maybe this will give me the incentive to do that. Uh, Jay, uh, my uh, editor at Compliance Week, Bill Coffin, uh, I think most listeners know I also write for Compliance Week, he writes a weekly column. And over the past two weeks, last week I thought it was really good. This week it's beyond really good. And uh, he spoke about the role of a compliance officer to be the conscience of a company. And he used it, he, he start, uh, his uh, kind of hook was Aetna is under investigation in your fair state of California because they have had um, medical directors with the power to approve or deny insurance coverage for claims who made the decision without reviewing the medical records. And, it would, you know, I know you guys in California, a lot of sunlight, a lot of, you know, time on the beach. And, uh, of course, Encino, that speaks a whole world in and of itself. So maybe things are a little bit different in California. But I think really in the rest of the world, you, if you're going to make a decision on uh, whether something's covered, you generally have to review the medical records. Uh, and if you don't, as uh, Bill noted, that uh, certainly um, – does not look bad, and it may even be a violation of the law. But he takes this further and really doesn't hammer on Aetna, but really goes to the role of compliance. And he listed uh, three questions that he thought every compliance officer should bring to the table, uh, which I think are great. So number one, will our decisions serve our stakeholders as best as possible? Two, will our decisions outrage the public? And three, will our decisions create risk? And I thought that was a great way, Jay, for Bill to frame the questions really in a business context uh, so that a compliance officer is not simply talking about the law. He's not simply talking about complying with our internal codes, but really uh, taking a look at all of the stakeholders, uh, um, insureds, uh, the boards of directors, senior management, shareholders, the public, the medical regulatory and uh, insurance regulatory board in the state of California, all of the stakeholders that a major insurer has. So uh, kudos to Bill Coffin for what I thought was just nailing it. And before you comment, let me turn to an article by Joe Mount, uh, my colleague at Compliance Week. And Joe really talked about uh, non-disclosure agreements. And I want to tie it to bills because the point I got from Joe's article was that companies certainly want non-disclosure agreements when they settle with employees. It's been a staple of um, employment law, at least since I've been practicing, and that's 35 years. Uh, if you pay money, that it's a confidential settlement. But he, Joe points out that for whatever legal protections you may get from a greater societal and reputational uh, risk, it is devastating. And certainly he pointed to the uh, USA uh, gymnastics scandal um, with uh, the doctor from Michigan State and the um, payments were made uh, to uh, then young women uh, for their uh, sexual harassment claims and um, the other types of uses of non-disclosure agreements to prevent uh, if not um, criminal actions being brought forward, certainly civil harms. And it really drives home the lesson that 
Compliance broadly and ethically behavior more specifically must be fueled by transparency. Admitting a problem is counterintuitively the fastest way to redeem your public image. Hiding behind layers and the creative application of legal paperwork may only amplify your headache when it's uncovered. And it really, Jay, uh, speaks to the difference in the corporate legal function and the corporate compliance function. The corporate legal function, this is exactly what they do. Um, protect the company. And they do that, but with a variety of tools, all uh, legal. From the compliance perspective, though, uh, it wants to be about transparency and most importantly, remediation. How did you fix the problem after you found out about it? And if you can't talk about the problem, you can't fix it. So I really wanted to tie those two together because they spoke to a role of the compliance officer um, articulated in a way that you know, perhaps is a little different, certainly from their journalistic perspective, I thought was uh, very interesting. And now, what did you think? Oh, wow. I've, I've been holding my breath wanting to say uh, my <laughs> remark. I mean, Tom, I, I think there, there, there are two different articles from uh, two ends of the spectrum, but it, it's the same thing. And um, I, I like the point that you drew forward about the, the transparency on both issues, whether it's the transparency that, you know, Bill needs to speak about is how does this situation affect um, stakeholders, the public and, uh, you know, risk prevention. But also what Joe's saying there is that while the NDA had a, a purpose from the labor law perspective, it unfortunately allowed these predators to continue, uh, you know, um, harming people for decades upon decades. So uh, both two good pieces to highlight. Um, next up, where you've got a couple of, uh, I guess, uh, declinations. And the first one is uh, from Core Lab, which is an Amsterdam-based uh, laboratory said in its U.S. securities filing Monday that the DOJ and the SEC have both closed investigations into the company's dealings with oil and won't bring any more enforcement. Uh, this began, began to look at the situation last October, and this was in light of the whole unit oil um, matter that came forward. Another company that has also uh, been uh, issued a declination is Juniper Networks. And uh, they issued a similar statement with wording that says the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Department of Justice, um, let's see, have uh, closed the company's previously disclosed investigation into a possible violation by the companies of the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So these are two uh, matters that stemmed uh, directly from the unit oil findings and uh, Maybe this presages that there's more to come in this uh, first half of 2018. Next thing we're going to look at is uh, an article from Sam Rubenfeld, uh, and it's entitled U.S. Charges Former Venezuelan Officials from PDVSA Bribery Probe. And the U.S. prosecutors unsealed charges this past Monday against five former Venezuelan officials as part of a larger ongoing investigation into bribery at the state-owned Venezuelan energy company Petroleos de Venezuela, or PDVSA. Uh, the five were known as the management team and conspired with one another to solicit bribes from vendors in exchange for assistance 
and securing business with the company. Uh, and now here's the point where I'd like you to opine. Charges were unsealed after one of the defendants, Cesar Rincon, appeared Monday in Houston Federal Court following his extradition from Spain, prosecutors said. Three, other prosecu- three others, the prosecutor said, remain in Spanish custody pending extradition, and the fifth co-defendant is at large. So how did this uh, hit the papers in Houston? So uh, not surprisingly, this was a um, uh, front page, at least on the business paper of Houston. This has, though, been somewhat ongoing, Jay. We've had uh, prior uh, guilty pleas by two individuals, Roberto Rincon and um, Jose Sierra, uh, earlier. It's uh, not clear to me if Cesar Rincon is related to uh, Roberto Rincon. But this is an ongoing investigation. Uh, a couple of things that I thought were noteworthy, one from the legal perspective, um, Cesar Rincon was uh, deported, or excuse me, extradited from Spain. Um, and two, uh, two of the others who are uh, Venezuelan citizens, uh, I believe, are still in uh, Spanish custody and have not been extradited. So... It's unclear if uh, Cesar Rincon was, is a U.S. citizen or has some other jurisdictional link that would allow the Spanish to deport him or rather extradite him to the, to the United States. The two that are not or have not been uh, extradited are De Leon and Via Lobos. Uh, they're also charged with uh, a conspiracy to violate the FCPA. So it would be interesting to see from a legal perspective how a bribe uh, receiver uh, will be charged with conspiracy to violate uh, the FCPA since it only criminalizes the act of paying a bribe, not to receiving a bribe. Now, of course, money laundering uh, is part of the receiving end, so that's how uh, they would get those people. Also, uh, so this has been ongoing in, um, I'm sorry, Cesar Rincon is the re- brother of Roberto uh, Rincon. So um, there may be some other U.S. jurisdictional links that we're not aware of. But this has been an long time ongoing investigation. It's a, a deep, deep corruption scandal. What I'm interested in, Jay, is even with the obvious antipathy between the current Venezuelan government and the current United States government, um, has there been cooperation between uh, those two governments over this is- issue? Certainly, uh, Venezuela recognizes that corruption uh, has certainly hurt them, uh, particularly at Pedavesa. Uh, We know how the United States feels about it. So it's uh, going to be very interesting going forward. Uh, We'll have to see whether uh, Mr. Villalobos and Mr. Uh, 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 Perez, or excuse me, uh, De Leon, are um, extradited to the United States. But I think this is uh, really one that is uh, going to continue. And uh, once they scratch the surface of Petavesa, it uh, probably is going to be ugly going forward. All right. Uh, next, we have a article to share with you that was uh, picked up on the SCCE website, and it's written by um, Sally Alfonso, who is a compliance advisor at the ABN AMRO Bank in the Netherlands, and she writes about her experience at the recent SCCE Utilities and Energy Compliance, which you recently attended in D.C., 
and she shares with us that although she works in banking, she flew 3,800 miles from Amsterdam to Washington, D.C. to spend three days attending the uh, conference. And part of the reasons, there's five main reasons why she urges people to get out of your compliance comfort zone. The first is to de demonstrate interest and more than just networking, it's about value adding. Meeting other people is in the compliance field as equals and being able to speak with them uh, beyond day jobs. Number two is to talk about shared, exec um, shared objectives. What uh, what is very interesting is actually, from her perspective, is dealing with folks who are in highly regulated sectors. Despite the relevant authority under whose oversight they are located, they all must contend with regulatory stakeholders and management and stay up to date with supervisory. Uh, point three is something that was really interesting to me, and she talked about being positively disrupted. And, uh, you know, she's constantly preaching to stakeholders and people in different businesses to get out of their comfort zone and to learn about how they can interact with others in the company. And that's something that Sally did coming to an energy and utilities conference, which is nothing like her um, day job of working in finance. Uh, the last two points were continuing her education and speaking for herself. So, not only did she attend the conference, but she also was a speaker and gave back. So she uh, concludes her piece by saying, thanks to broadening her horizons by attending the conference in a field other than her own, she's bringing back tons of tips and tricks to bring back to work. She has more. She has discovered that there's more than unites us than differentiates us. And to continue to mature the profession of being a compliance professional, we must evolve as individuals with knowledge that is both deep and broad. So I think this is uh, a real great uh, just way to approach these conferences. And uh, as Sally says, if you can get out of your comfort zone, I think it gives an opportunity for uh, many revelations. So, Jay, I was really interested in your thoughts because you've been uh, a big proponent of and very articulate about why people should attend conferences, your personal experience, and how it's really led you uh, to really a growth and maturity in your own personal compliance journey. So I was interested, though, that Sally had a couple of different angles that are equally important, and uh, one of which is... Uh, in, in, I belong to a couple of groups where we are very strident about that uh, the more senior people have to go to support the younger people and that there were people, senior people, when we were new to the organization. And now uh, as we garner seniority, uh, we need to be there for those people. And it's called giving back. And you talk about it in terms of kind of the work you guys do in the volunteer work. But she talks about it here in terms of giving back to the profession. And I really, uh, I thought that was a, a great point. The other point was the more, more broadly, you and I talk about the uh, Compliance and Ethics Institute. Uh, you've talked about here recently um, the South, uh, Southern California uh, Compliance Conference. But here we have a woman who's in the banking sector going to utilities and energy conference. And it really spoke to me about one of the things that I love about going to different types of compliance events, and I'm going to have to throw this one in, although obviously I'm from the energy space, is the utility space. 
And in many ways, I've learned as much or more from the utility folks at this conference than I did from uh, my energy colleagues. And uh, recognizing that the uh, utility space is highly regulated, but because of that, they have very substantive, well-thought-out, articulated policies and procedures that they follow. Uh, When you're producing uh, nuclear power, you have to have a robust compliance program, not only for anti-corruption compliance, but certainly for safety and environmental compliance. And they talk about that. They talk about the steps they go through. A woman from NERC talked about a root cause analysis that they performed on what would have appeared to have been a relatively minor offense, yet they were able to uncover multiple problems that were really both safety and security issues. So going to this type of event, if it's outside your industry, can really lead to insights in different ways for you to do compliance within your uh, industry. So I was very intrigued by Sally's point. Um, You you know, you and I come at it from a little bit different angle than hers, but I thought hers was uh, equally valid and something that uh, we should consider going forward. Definitely. So um, I think to kind of close this out before we get to announcements, we've got a couple pieces to look about. Look at the 2018 World's Most Ethical Companies Honorary List that was just uh, released by Ethisphere. And uh, we've got some commentary from Matt Kelly. And um, your thoughts on this year's rankings, Tom? So what Matt wrote about is something that I've been writing about, thinking about, and talking about for some time. But Matt, of course, went about it with uh, his own unique angle. And he took a look at what were the common attributes of these companies. And uh, he picked out four, which I thought are certainly worth mentioning. Number one, the honorees have diverse leadership, uh, diversity in terms of race, diversity in terms of gender, diversity in terms of age. Second is they build trust using transparency in reporting and the investigative process. We talked about transparency uh, several times during this podcast and the importance of shining the light of day uh, into your compliance program. Three, whistleblower protections have increased across the board with 98%, excuse me, 99% of uh, those honorees on the list uh, using uh, protecting uh, whistleblowers uh, for coming forward. And finally, uh, more honorees are doing more to measure culture. And I know measuring culture is something near and dear to your heart and indeed the heart of affiliated monitors. Is that something you guys re- do on a, on a, a, if not routine basis, certainly an off fairly amount, often amount for your clients. And so to see that recognized really is one of the key indicators of a world's most ethical company uh, award, I think was very gratifying. Matt also talked about something that I really focus on, which is the ethics premium, which is the higher stock returns world's most ethical companies enjoy compared to companies on the standard and poor 500 uh, as a whole. Over the past three years, that premium has been just under 5%. So um, uh, in early March, uh, Ethisphere is going to um, release some of the specific financial information about these companies. And Erica Salman-Byrne has promised me a podcast. Uh, she's with uh, vice president with uh, SVP with Ethisphere. She's promised me a podcast. And I really want to go into that uh, with her uh, because it's something I've thought about and written about uh, quite a bit. But obviously very exciting for the companies who received the award. Kudos. Um, on being uh, yet again on the world's most ethical company list. 
And uh, I look forward to really further exploring this with uh, you, Matt, uh, wide uh, Erica, a wide variety of other uh, compliance practitioners, and see what we can learn from these companies, Jay. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's no longer just a coincidence. That is a, a steady um, positive uh, gap between the standard imports and what these companies do. So we're always talking about how can you transform ethics and compliance from being uh, something that has to be done as opposed to something that adds value to your company. So it's uh, it'll be real interesting to see uh, the, the further details that Erica has to share. Um, what is happening in terms of uh, your book? And then how was the training that went down this week in Miami? So um, first on Miami, let me start with that. Uh, Jonathan Marks at Markham uh, LLP uh, hosted another uh, two-day uh, doing compliance masterclass session that I put on. Markham, uh, co uh, he and Markham hosted it. So uh, we had a great turnout and some really great discussions. Uh, we had uh, folks that flo flew in from Houston in addition to those in South Florida. Uh, interesting mix of people. And uh, as always, I probably learned as much as uh, anyone else. So it was a great master class. And uh, we had such a, a, a request for additional classes that Jonathan and I are probably going to have to go back to Miami either in May or June. But uh, we're trying to figure out our next master class, Jay, and uh, we're hoping to do it in, uh, in Los Angeles. So uh, maybe you can make it if we, uh, we do that. Um, and then, uh, once again, um, I have uh, announced the pre-sale of my next book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. It will be a 700-page tome on everything you need to know about a best practices compliance program, having information as recent as the 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs and the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Program. It will literally be the only compliance handbook that incorporates the, the most up-to-date information. Uh, I hope to have it out in mid-April, but you can. Uh, it's going to be published by Compliance Week, but you can order a copy now. That information is available on my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. I'm going to have uh, more information coming in, out about it. Uh, next week, I'm going to start a series um, on the um, 10 Hallmarks of an Effective Compliance Program uh, audio white paper on J.D. Supra, and then I'll also be doing another podcast series on the 10 Hallmarks of an Effective Compliance Program, all really to celebrate um uh, awareness of uh, my new book. So I'm very excited about that. I hope you'll buy one if you're listening, and I would certainly be more than happy to sign it. And that includes one for you too, Jay. All right. On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending time with us and learning about everything that happened from an ethics and compliance and uh, FCPA perspective. And this has been week 90, uh, the carbon copy episode for the week ending February 16th, 2018. Enjoy your weekend and we'll speak to you soon. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly review of all things compliance and ethics. 
Also, please subscribe to this podcast if you don't do so already so you can get it each week when it's released. Finally, if you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you will join us again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.